This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and adult content that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Alexina Smart tried to keep her spirits up as she arrived at the Garvey's house bright and early on the morning of May 16, 1968. She didn't mind working as a house cleaner, but on such a fine spring day, it was a shame to spend so many hours cooped up inside, especially when the Garveys were in such a foul mood. Alexina was careful not to pry into her employer's lives, but it was impossible not to notice how much things had changed in the last few years. A tense atmosphere surrounded the place. Mr. Garvey barked at his family like a tyrant, Mrs. Garvey hardly seemed present. Even when she was home, her mind was always someplace far away. The poor children were growing up half wild with nobody taking proper care of them. Of course, none of it was Alexina's business, so she tried to keep her mind on her work. That morning, as she made her way toward the bedrooms, she heard Mrs. Garvey's voice calling sharply behind her. Don't clean the master bedroom. Alexina asked why, but Mrs. Garvey's tone stayed sharp. Don't go in that room, ever again. Go wash out the garage. It was a strange request, but Alexina did as she was told. Later, though, curiosity got the best of her. Once Mrs. Garvey left the house for lunch, she slipped back upstairs. She moved quietly down the hall until she reached the Garvey's bedroom. Then, holding her breath, she opened the door. Inside, she found the familiar empty bedroom she cleaned each day. Only everything was different. All the furniture was strangely rearranged. The bed was harder to get to, and you could no longer see the TV when lying down. Perplexed, Alexina closed the door. Mrs. Garvey had been so adamant about keeping her out of the bedroom, as if she were scared of what Alexina might find. It didn't make sense for her to be so secretive, unless she had something to hide. 
Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Last week, we met Maxwell Garvey, a wealthy and charismatic farmer in Lawrence Kirk, Scotland, who pushed his wife Sheila into a radical lifestyle. And Max's insistence, the couple experimented with nudism, pornographic photo shoots, and swinging parties. In 1967, 34-year-old Max introduced 32-year-old Sheila to 22-year-old Brian Tevendale and encouraged them to sleep together. But when Brian and Sheila fell in love, Max intervened to end the relationship. This week, We'll discuss the continued affair between Sheila and Brian behind Max's back as Sheila plotted to escape her marriage. The love triangle ended with violent consequences. By April of 1968, Max and Sheila Garvey had reached the lowest point of their volatile marriage. They had frequent screaming matches about their sex life, which Max always found unsatisfying. He raged about Sheila's affair with 22-year-old Brian Tevendale and feared she might pack up and leave him permanently. When he wasn't fighting with his wife, Max acted out in bizarre and dangerous ways. He had enjoyed flying as a hobby for years, but now he started getting drunk before taking off in his airplane. On one occasion, while flying along the coast, His aircraft dove so close to the harbor that several people jumped out of their boats into the water. People close to him wondered if he had a death wish. Max confided in his younger sister, 33-year-old Hilda, that his home life was hell, and he didn't know how long it would be before he cracked. Sheila Garvey was equally distressed. Max frequently berated her. When the subject of Brian Tevendale came up, he became physically abusive. Sheila later admitted that she was overusing tranquilizers and sleeping pills at the time just to isolate herself from her husband. It was a relief to Sheila when Max was out of the house. When he was gone, she could meet secretly with Brian Tevendale, often at the home of Brian's sister, Trudy. When they were together, Sheila and Brian spoke scornfully about Max, but Trudy didn't realize how bad things had gotten between the Garveys. She believed that Sheila and Brian were joking. Before I continue with the couple's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. 
Forensic psychologist Dr. Joni Johnston has studied couples who commit crimes together. She wrote that in studying these couples, she repeatedly saw weak-minded dependent persons who were quickly and easily transformed into whatever their dominant partner wanted them to be. Brian Tevendale later said that Sheila was the one who came up with the idea of murdering Max. He was just following the lead of the woman he adored. He stated, I can't remember how she worded it, but she said it would be better with Max out of the way. I was shocked, but I'd have done anything she wanted. It wasn't long before Brian proved his loyalty. On May 14, 1968, Max Garvey spent the evening at a political meeting for the Scottish Nationalist Party. He had a few drinks and spoke to several acquaintances, telling them of his plans to go flying the next day. He also remarked that he was looking forward to their next scheduled meeting, two days later, on the 16th. A prospective parliamentary candidate was coming to speak at the event, and Max was excited to hear the speech. He left around 10 p.m., telling a friend that he didn't want to keep his wife waiting. While Max attended his meeting, Sheila was at home for a quiet night with the children. Around 9 p.m., she read stories to her four-year-old son, Lloyd, and then lay down with him until he was asleep. Then, she went to watch television with her two daughters, 12-year-old Wendy and 11-year-old Angela. Wendy even remembered the program they watched. It was her favorite show, The Avengers. Just as the episode was about to end, Max came home. Soon after he arrived, Sheila rushed the girls to bed. Wendy later recalled that her mother had been drinking a lot that night and had seemed particularly upset and agitated. When she sent the girls to their rooms, Sheila told them, no matter what, don't get up. After the children went to bed, Sheila stayed up for a while with Max and had another drink. She said they had some sort of trivial argument and she went upstairs to go to bed. Max followed and persuaded her to have sex. Then they fell asleep. While the Garveys were arguing at home, Brian Tevendale was across town, having drinks at a pub with his friend, Alan Peters. Brian had asked Alan to pick him up from his sister Trudy's house earlier that evening. Trudy thought they were going out on a mechanic job as the two men frequently made car repair house calls together. But that night, Brian had other plans. After stopping at the pub for drinks, Brian asked Alan to drive him to West Cairnbeg, the Garvey's farmhouse in Lawrencekirk. Alan agreed, not thinking anything of it. Brian himself may not have been entirely sure what his plan was. He later said, I don't think we knew what was going to happen. It wasn't until later that reality began to hit. When they arrived at West Cairnbeg, Brian instructed Alan to pull the car into a lane behind a farm. They got out and strode toward the garage. Brian, Alan, and Sheila have all told varying accounts of what happened next. According to Alan, when he and Brian got to the house, they found Sheila Garvey waiting to let them inside. Sheila brought them into the sitting room and offered them whiskey. When they had drained their glasses, Brian stepped into the hallway between the garage and the kitchen and grabbed one of Max's 22 caliber rifles propped against the wall. Brian then pulled ammunition out of his pocket and loaded the gun. 
Alan was not sure what Brian wanted to do with the gun. He was afraid to ask and worried that if he interfered, Brian might turn the gun on him. The three went upstairs and Sheila led them into a guest room across the hall from their bedroom. After about 15 minutes, she returned and told Brian, he's asleep. Then she led them across the hall into the Garvey's master bedroom. Sheila later emphatically denied that she let the two men in the house. She said that around 11.30 p.m., she woke up to find Brian Tevendale standing over her bed, along with a strange man she didn't know. She said Brian guided her into the hallway and told her to wait there and make sure her children didn't wake up. At that point, Sheila said, she noticed that Brian was holding a gun. Despite the differences in their stories, all three individuals had almost identical accounts of what happened next. Alan described how they found Max sleeping and Brian crept over to the bed. Brian later admitted, Max was lying on his back. I shot him in the head once. I think I put a pillow over the end of the gun to make sure there would be no sound. Brian then gathered sheets to wrap up the body. He and Alan lifted Max off the bed and carried him out of the room and into the stairway. The body was heavy, and Brian shuffled backwards, struggling to keep his footing. The descent down the stairs seemed interminable. His fingers ached as he gripped the shrouded body. He shuddered at the feeling of the heavy, limp muscle in his hands, pushing back a wave of revulsion. He tried to imagine himself in the middle of some dull and ordinary task, transporting a piece of furniture, an old couch or a dusty bureau, something easily discarded and forgotten. But it was hard to keep up the facade. Even with Max hidden by the sheet, Brian could make out the shape of the dead man's shattered skull, and he could see a bloom of red seeping through the white. He quickly looked away. If he thought too hard about the figure in his arms, he knew that fear would paralyze him. He couldn't stop now. He had to see things through, if only to have this horrible night behind him. At last, the two men reached the bottom of the steps and made their way toward the garage. There, Brian could finally set the body down. It was a relief to let go of the weight, but it didn't help ease the heavy pit of dread in his chest. He was struck with a sudden certainty that the feeling would never go away. He would carry it for the rest of his life. Brian later said that, I knew straight away that I'd made a big mistake, but there was no going back. After depositing the body in the garage, he and Alan started to feel shaky and panicked, so they returned to the sitting room and finished off the bottle of whiskey. Once their nerves were settled, they loaded the body into Alan's car. The plan was to ditch Max's car somewhere so it would look like he had run off and then dispose of the body in a different location. Before leaving the farmhouse, Brian and Sheila embraced. He kissed her and told her he was going to hide the body, but he wouldn't tell her where. Then, he climbed into Max's Ford Cortina. He instructed Alan to follow behind him in his own car. The two men drove off, leaving Sheila at the house. In spite of the dreadful night, she took some solace in the fact that she was finally alone. For the first time in 10 years, 
she was free of Maxwell Garvey. In a moment, Brian, Sheila, and Alan struggle to keep the murder quiet as suspicions swirl around Max's mysterious disappearance. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On the night of May 14th, 1968, 33-year-old Sheila Garvey waited until her husband Max was asleep. She then invited her lover, 22-year-old Brian Tevendale, and his friend, Alan Peters, into the bedroom. Using one of Max's rifles, Brian shot Max in the head. With the help of Alan, Brian carried the body into Alan's car. In the dead of night, Brian drove away to ditch Max's car, while Alan followed closely behind him. The men first drove to the hangar where Max kept his plane. Brian left Max's Ford Cortina haphazardly parked on the airfield's runway. This was perhaps an attempt to make it seem as if Max had taken a trip, although his plane was still in the hangar. Brian then ran back to Alan's car and they sped off. Next, they had to figure out what to do with the body. Alan drove them to the nearby town of St. Cyrus, where Brian had lived as a boy. Growing up, he remembered playing on the grounds of Loriston Castle, a clifftop fortress surrounded by woodlands. Brian and Alan took the body there. The night was pitch black and foggy, but Brian managed to lead them to a nearby quarry. They walked until they came upon an open manhole, leading down to a tunnel which ran between the quarry and the west side of the castle. The entrance was partially blocked by shrubs and grass, but the men brushed aside the undergrowth. Brian descended the shaft. He told Alan to lower the body down and then follow him into the tunnel. The tunnel was only about three feet tall and two feet wide, not nearly large enough for the men to stand, but Brian and Alan managed to crawl inside anyway they dug a shallow indentation into the mud. Then, they pushed the body into the depression and covered it with stones. By the time they were finished, it was around 5 a.m. The men backed out of the tunnel. Alan took the sheet that they had wrapped around the body with him, doused it in gasoline, and burned it. Alan and Brian returned to the car and attempted to turn around on the narrow road, but they ended up backing Alan's car into the quarry they had to walk to the home of a nearby farmer and ask for help, telling him that they had gotten lost. The farmer towed the car out with his tractor. They gave him 10 shillings and drove away. At around 7 a.m., Alan took Brian back to his sister Trudy's house. Brian made coffee and the two men drank in silence. Brian only managed to down half a cup before he pushed it away and ran to the sink to throw up. Alan left him in the kitchen and went home. Around 8 a.m. that morning, Trudy Burse woke up and went downstairs. She found a pile of muddy clothes on the kitchen floor. 
she stepped into the living room and found her brother Brian sitting in a chair and staring vacantly. She asked him why he had left his clothes scattered all over the kitchen, but he wouldn't respond. She kept pressing him. Eventually, he turned to her and said, It's been done. It's over. Max is dead. Trudy broke down in sobs. Six months prior, she had been devastated when Max broke up with her. She had delighted in the sexual liberation she experienced with Max and his swinging parties. She was horrified to realize that her brother had killed her former lover. She said, I think it was the most dreadful thing that could happen to anyone. Despite being devastated and afraid, Trudy collected herself and returned to the kitchen to gather Brian's clothes. She began to wash them, hoping to get rid of any trace of blood. While Trudy was scrubbing Brian's clothes, Sheila Garvey was busy with her own cleanup job. Max's murder had left a messy crime scene in the bedroom, and Sheila worked frantically to erase the evidence. She dragged the bed away from the wall and began to scrub where Max's blood had spattered onto the wallpaper and baseboard. When she couldn't get rid of all the traces, she moved the bedroom furniture around to try to cover up the stains. She did the best she could with the blood on the walls, but there was nothing she could do about the mattress and bedding. She had to get rid of it. She gave her housekeeping staff instructions to stay out of the bedrooms. Then she called Brian at Trudy's house and asked him to come help. At some point that day, Brian came to the farmhouse with a mattress he had taken from Trudy's bedroom. He swapped it for the old blood-soaked mattress, which he took back to Trudy's house with him. By then, Trudy's husband, Alfred, was home from work. He noticed that their mattress was gone from the bedroom and asked Trudy what had happened. Without thinking, she told him Brian had taken it. When he asked why, she hesitated. She didn't know whether or not to tell him what Brian did, but the secret was eating her alive. She told Alfred everything Brian had told her. Alfred was a police constable, and he too struggled with coming clean to authorities. He knew that if he called the police, his brother-in-law and his wife would both be implicated in the murder. He perhaps also held a grudge against Max for having an affair with his wife and wasn't sorry to see the man dead. Alfred decided that he could help Brian and Sheila instead of turning them in. It was the only way to keep his family together. When he learned that Brian had brought the Garvey's old blood-stained mattress home with him, he instructed Brian to lead him back to the quarry where Max's body was buried. They brought the mattress there and burned it. Alfred allegedly also helped Brian dispose of the boots he was wearing the previous night. He even advised Sheila on how to clean fingerprints from the rifle. The group, which had once cultivated an exhilarating bond through swinging parties and experimental sex, were now bound together by a deadly secret. Mark Levine, a social psychologist who studies the way group dynamics influence behavior, explored how members of a group can fail to act when witnessing horrific crimes, such as child sex abuse, using the scandal at Penn State as an example. In that case, Several members of the football team's coach staff witnessed or learned about the team's defensive coordinator abusing children, but they failed to report him. 
Levine explained that when the workings of the group are secretive or hidden, like those of a major college football team, for instance, or a political party or the Catholic priesthood, the tendency is toward protecting the group's reputation by covering up. Even though Alfred and Trudy had not been present for the murder, they went to great lengths to conceal it for the sake of their group. With the Burse's help, the murder evidence was destroyed. Next, Sheila had to assume the role of the anxious wife, worried about her missing husband. She went to the airfield where Brian had left Max's car and visited with William Heath, a member of Max's flying club. She asked William if he knew where her husband was. William told her that he did not, but he was sure Max would turn up sooner or later. Sheila later called the Lawrence Kirk Police Station and reported her husband missing. Police interviewed her, and she told them that she and her husband had gone to bed around midnight on the night of the 14th, but when she awoke the next day, he was gone. At that time, police had no reason to suspect foul play, and they treated it as a missing persons case. Sheila conducted her initial police interview without giving up any incriminating information, but she couldn't hide the cracks in her grieving wife facade from everyone. On Thursday, May 16th, Less than 48 hours after the murder, she let it slip to her mother, Edith, that Max wouldn't be coming back. She even seemed pleased about it. When Edith asked whether Max was dead, Sheila nodded. Edith was aghast and afraid to hear any more. Sheila didn't reveal any details about the death, but she did mention something about having a strong man to protect her. When her mother asked whether she was referring to Brian Tevendale, Sheila again nodded. Edith decided to move in with her daughter and grandchildren indefinitely. She hoped to persuade Sheila to leave Brian. For her children's sake, she could not stay with the man who murdered their father. Despite Edith's pleas, Sheila did not listen. She continued to see Brian. Both of them relished the freedom they had with Max gone. Within a few weeks, they were seen together in town on dates and on picnics, making no attempt to hide their affair. The Garvey's insurance broker even paid Sheila a visit and advised her not to associate with other men while her husband was missing, but Sheila and Brian refused to give each other up. As Brian and Sheila flaunted their relationship, friends and neighbors were scandalized, but not particularly surprised. There had long been rumors about the Garvey's rocky marriage. Max had the reputation of being moody and unpredictable. As far as anyone knew, he had simply gotten tired of Sheila and left town. Brian and Sheila encouraged that deception. Sheila gave the police a salacious statement, which appeared in the missing person section of the police gazette. It described Maxwell Garvey as, quote, a heavy drinker, fond of female company, but often in the company of young men, deals in pornographic material and is an active member of nudist camps, may have gone abroad. Perhaps Sheila hoped that revealing lore details about Max would detract attention away from her and Brian. As the summer went on, police continued their search for Max, but found nothing. Brian was confident that Max's body would never be discovered, but he and Sheila were worried that 20-year-old Alan Peters might give them up. Unlike Trudy and Alfred Burse, 
Alan didn't have any intimate relationship to the Garvey group. He later said that he and Brian Tevendale were merely pals. In the weeks following the murder, Brian and Sheila made an effort to visit Alan and his fiance regularly, perhaps to keep tabs on him and make sure he wasn't going to go to the police. When Alan got married in July, Brian served as his best man. Alan's sister, Annette, later said she hardly got a chance to speak with her brother at the wedding ceremony. Sheila and Brian had seemed eager to isolate him from the other guests, making sure he only spent time with them. Alan later said he spent this period frightened and on edge. He said he only remained friends with Brian Tevendale because he had seen the man murder someone and he was worried Brian might do the same to him. He tried to distance himself from the murder, even selling the car they used to transport the body. He remained silent about everything that transpired on the night of May 14th. As the months passed, Sheila felt more and more confident that she had gotten away with their crime. In August 1968, three months after the murder, she was spending more time in Aberdeen where Brian lived. She talked about moving there with him permanently. Sheila brought this up to her mother, who was still staying at West Cairnbeg with Sheila and the children. Edith was horrified by the thought of Sheila and the children moving in with Brian. She told Sheila that it was wrong, she repeated to her daughter that she must end things with her lover. Sheila responded, You are not going to run my life. On August 16th, they had a heated argument about Brian, after which Edith angrily left the farmhouse. Sheila didn't know it, but her mother was headed for the police station. Edith had known for months that Max had been murdered and had kept the secret because she didn't want to hurt Sheila. But when Sheila wouldn't listen to reason, her mother couldn't stay silent any longer. At the Lawrence Kirk police station, Edith informed the police sergeant that she believed Max Garvey was dead and that he had been murdered by Brian Tevendale. Early that afternoon, police raced to West Cairnbeg to speak with Sheila Garvey. Sheila's daughter, Wendy, later recalled the moment officers showed up at her house to take her mother away. She said, the police came. My mother said, I won't be long, I love you. It was the only time I remember her saying that. Then, around 5.45 that evening, police went to the East Nuke Bar in Aberdeen, where Brian worked. Brian froze as the officers came toward him. He had known this was coming. Max Garvey was a rich man with a lot of important friends. It was impossible to get rid of a man like that and then sweep it under the rug. He didn't resist as the police took him away, but he was nervous. If he was in trouble, so was Sheila and maybe Alan. Brian wondered what they would say about the whole thing. He loved Sheila. He wanted to believe that was enough to see them through this, but he couldn't be sure. The cops began to ask him questions right away. He couldn't tell what they knew and what they didn't. He felt lost and bewildered. He finally decided that the less he talked, the better. His best bet was to stay quiet and hope for the best. In a moment, we'll talk about how the authorities built their case for murder 
leading to one of the most infamous trials in Scotland's history. Now, back to the story. On Friday, August 16, 1968, three months after the disappearance of 35-year-old Max Garvey, police officers brought Max's 34-year-old wife, Sheila, and her 22-year-old lover, Brian Tevendale, into custody. They suspected the pair had murdered Max. Authorities spent hours questioning them. Twice during the questioning, the interrogators allowed Brian and Sheila to speak privately. Brian later said, Sheila told me to keep quiet. Either that or I could take the blame. She said she wasn't getting involved. For a while, Brian took Sheila's advice and stayed silent, but police didn't let up their interrogation. Around three o'clock in the morning, Brian finally said, get a car, I will take you to the body at Lauriston. Early that morning, Saturday, August 17th, Brian led the police to the tunnel where he had buried Max's body. After months of speculation, police finally had confirmation that Maxwell Garvey was dead. Around 9 a.m., the police sergeant returned to headquarters and informed Sheila Garvey that her husband's body had been found. At that point, Sheila told police the story she stuck to for the rest of her life. She said she woke up in the middle of the night and found Brian Tevendale and Alan Peters in her room. Brian told her to go into the hall. Moments later, she heard the sound of a rifle blast and learned that Brian had killed Max. When asked why she didn't go to the police if she wasn't involved in the murder, Sheila replied, I felt morally responsible because I had allowed Brian to fall in love with me. I felt I had unconsciously provoked him in the emotional state in which he was. I took a decision that night that whatever happened, I would protect Brian because of what he had done for me. Police didn't believe that Brian could have dragged the body into the quarry alone. Based on Sheila's statement, they tracked down Alan Peters for questioning. Alan had been frightened and racked with guilt for months. Almost immediately, he told the police sergeant everything he knew about the Garveys and Brian Tevendale. His story contradicted Sheila's and implicated her directly in the planning of the crime. Soon, Brian Tevendale, Alan Peters, and Sheila Garvey were all formally charged with murder. The trial was set for November 19, 1968. Media interest in the story skyrocketed. The murder trial was such a highly anticipated event that on November 19th, crowds showed up at the courthouse at dawn, hours before the proceedings were scheduled to start. Police had to set up barriers to keep order as people gathered on the streets. When the doors opened, the courtroom was filled to capacity with an overflow of hundreds of people waiting outside. As the trial proceeded, Brian Tevendale's lawyer advised him not to testify, and so the competing narratives of Sheila Garvey and Alan Peters became the focus. The jury had to decide which story, if any, they found more credible. Alan presented himself as a naive bystander, drawn into a seedy love triangle, and then coerced into covering up a murder planned by Sheila and Brian. Sheila described herself as a beleaguered wife whose husband pushed her into the arms of Brian Tevendale. She testified that Brian and Alan had acted on their own in murdering Max, 
but her love for Brian compelled her to protect him. Dozens of witnesses testified, including Trudy and Alfred Burse. Spectators listened raptly to the details of the Garvey sex parties, and journalists eagerly printed these reports in newspapers across the United Kingdom. The trial lasted 10 days. On December 2, 1968, the jury returned a verdict. They found the charges against Alan Peters not proven. This verdict, unique to Scotland, was essentially the jury's way of saying that they weren't prepared to return a verdict of not guilty, which would imply that they thought he was innocent, but they also didn't feel that the prosecution had met its burden of establishing guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Alan Peters was free to go home. Brian Tevendale and Sheila Garvey did not enjoy the same outcome. Both were found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Sheila Garvey and Brian Tevendale embraced before they were separated and led from the courtroom. Sheila was transported to the only female prison in Scotland, located in the south, nearly 150 miles from Lawrencekirk. Brian remained closer to home. He was transferred to a men's prison in northeast Scotland. There were initially rumors that Brian and Sheila planned to request special permission to marry, but three months after the verdict, Sheila reportedly sent Brian a terse letter. When the mail cart passed his prison cell, Brian eagerly reached out to grab the envelope addressed to him. He was always excited to receive a letter from Sheila. Their correspondences were all he had to look forward to. But when he eased back into his flimsy cot and read through the brief note, his blood ran cold. She wrote, I have decided to have nothing more to do with you ever again. She told him not to write her again and destroy all the previous letters she sent him. It was a gut punch. Throughout everything, Brian kept up hope that he and Sheila would end up together. Otherwise, what had it all been for? A man was dead because of them. Thinking about it was like a knife twist every day. If Sheila didn't want to be with him, then he had killed Max for nothing. They had sacrificed everything, endured the trial and the disgrace for nothing. Bitterness overtook Brian. He would have done anything she asked for, but he hadn't anticipated that she would ask him to give up their love. He didn't know if he could do it. He crumpled the letter and tossed it aside. He couldn't read it anymore. He stared at the prison bars in front of him, thinking about life without Sheila and all the empty years that lay ahead. While Brian and Sheila served their sentences, the others implicated in the murder and cover-up also dealt with the fallout from the crime. Trudy and Alfred Burst divorced. Alfred kept custody over their three children. Alan Peters and his wife also divorced. In 1978, both Sheila Garvey and Brian Tevendale were released on parole after serving 10 years of their sentence. Neither showed any interest in reuniting. Brian said of Sheila, I can't say I feel anything about her now. She has her life to get on with, and so do I. Brian went back to a quiet life as the proprietor of a pub. In 2003, at the age of 58, 
he died of a heart attack. Upon her release, 43-year-old Sheila Garvey moved back to her hometown of Stonehaven, where she operated a bed and breakfast she'd inherited from an aunt. A year after leaving prison, she married a man named David McClellan, but they divorced soon after. She got married a third time to a local man named Charles Miller. That marriage lasted until his death in 1992. Sheila was resolute about putting the past behind her. She refused all interview requests and kept out of the public eye in the decades since her infamous trial. But the community has not forgotten the sensational crime. As late as 2017, when Sheila's son Lloyd put their farmhouse on the market, news outlets reported that the notorious Kinky Cottage was for sale. Sheila Garvey once told her mother that her problems were over once Max Garvey was dead, but ultimately, the murder only caused more suffering. Max's death did not give Sheila or her family any reprieve. Instead, it left a stunned community to reflect on the damage caused by one unhappy marriage. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskin. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Mm-hmm.